example of community is something that I need, so I got that. And by speaking into my life, they also spoke into this work. And uh, it was very, very important and precious. And so, from that, there were two things that I've learned that relate to us. I'd like to share them with you. Uh, Number one is that God is establishing apostolic centers around the world. What I mean by that is not some man-made, you know, organization, though it requires organization, but it's not a man-made organization with a building and it's a company and we're going to call ourselves apostles and have a school and do whatever and just manufacture this thing. No, God is doing something as a move of His Spirit. These are, these are churches and movements that I'm talking about that are centered on Jesus Christ. They're filled with the Spirit and they are, they're, they're, they're apostolic and kingdom-oriented in the way that they are led and organized. Okay, they don't belong to a denomination. It's the organic work of the Spirit, but it's God-placed authority that's, that's ruling these works that equips and liberates people but still gives the right kind of leadership. And it, it, it's special, it's alive, and it's part of God's restoring work in our day. Now, I already knew this was happening. For goodness sake, this the, the, the reason and the way we're planting this work. But it really was confirmed to my heart that this thing is happening. We live right now in our day during a very special day in history because we live in the flow of a legacy of God's restoring works. There's a lot of religion in our culture. There's a lot of religion in our world today that's contrary to the kingdom. But even so, God is moving in ways that we really should not take for granted. I mean, several centuries ago, and I know it was a long time ago, but in the Middle Ages, it was really dark, man just pop into a church with your Bible and pray freely, worship, speak in tongues, read the Bible for yourself, you know, have fellowship. The, religion was basically owned by the elite. People weren't even allowed to read their Bibles, if they could even read. They were just fed what the church wanted them to hear. It was illegal to own a Bible. People were killed for printing Bibles. We live in a glorious day where the Bible was restored to the church crushing the, 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 the prison of human religion there. The justification by faith over against religious tradition was restored during the Reformation, right? You understand what I'm saying? You know, um, uh, the, the centrality of the Word of God, the love for the Word of God, the, the, the glory of God, the people having their own Bibles, this was restored in the days of the Renaissance and Reformation. Beyond that, there were days of revival when the Spirit would move in unusual ways, and there was evangelistic fervor. There were moves of the Spirit, people getting uh, uh, moved on by the Spirit in the centuries that followed uh, so that that element of revival was restored to the church, the Spirit's activity, uh, preaching, missionary fervor. Then on top of that, in the 20th century, uh, in particular, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the speaking in other tongues and the other gifts of the Spirit through the Pentecostal and charismatic renewal, then that was added to the church. As things are going on in our day, God, on top of these things, the moves of grace, the moves of the gifts of the Spirit, now the, the, a, a, a reformation that is apostolic and prophetic where God is restoring Ephesians chapter 4 in practical ways to the church. That is not to say that it wasn't happening anywhere beforehand. It was. There's exceptions to every rule. But now it's a broad move of the Spirit. 
the people in this room, whether you realize it or not, and other people like you, are a part of that move. Because it's not about King's people. It's not about any one group. This is a move of the Spirit that we are choosing to be a part of. Because it's about the kingdom, which is about the authority and the reality of Jesus Christ, rather than Jesus with all of our traditions and all of our hang-ups tacked on. God's moving in a way that's more raw, that's more biblical, that's more kingdom, so that we don't have to be trapped simply by our old traditions, even those things that embodied good, restored truth, they we don't have to be trapped to any one thing. We could just follow Jesus and have a broad kingdom perspective. Amen and amen. Amen? Amen. So that's where we're at. We're part of restoring, moving, uh, restoring movement of the Spirit. Okay, you with me there? In our midst, God's restoring something today. We're just entering a season. Not just today, December 8th but including today and then beyond into this season that we're now in as King's people. Uh, and this is the second thing that the Lord spoke to me or, or showed me. Well, this is uh, the first thing he showed me. was clear in my mind. The second thing he spoke to me in prayer while I was on this trip. And it was a very simple but clear and important strategy for the King's people. I've been asking the Lord for strategy. This is certainly not the only stratagem, but it's the thing the Lord spoke to me and, um, for now. And it was this, and I, I believe this is our present mandate from the Lord. And I make that claim not to impress you or to persuade you, but rather to invite you to test what I'm saying. Because if you find it true, if you find it to be a current prophetic word giving us instruction, then we're responsible to make changes and adjustments to do something about it. And that is, very simply... The Lord is saying, restore the altar of worship in this work. Build an altar and be people of worship. So I thought, yeah, I, I could feel that. Now, I don't know if you, you know, you, that comes to you with impact, but I feel that it will if it doesn't now. Uh, and you can test it and pray about it. But here's where I'm coming from. When I teach a class at FIRE about the church and the church's identity, I start everything with the gospel. The gospel has to be understood. It's not just a little track to get people saved. It's the charter for the church. The gospel from beginning to end. It's not just how to get saved. It's how, it, the gospel is the charter that dictates every inch of the church's life. It speaks of justification by faith. But not only that, it doesn't just say it's a free gift of God, you can be saved. The church, uh, the, church the, the gospel proclaims that the church is... A renewed people. That means they're recreated. They're no longer saints. Excuse me, they're no longer sinners. They are saints. And they are transformed from what they were into something new. Okay, that's the gospel. That's not just fanciful, charismatic teaching. The gospel teaches in Romans 6 through 8 and elsewhere that we are renewed and recreated as people. And then the gospel teaches that we are created into a new community that is expressed at the Lord's table. Not in a service where there's communion, but at the Lord's table. That's a proclamation of the Gospel because the Gospel recreates people as God's family. So if we're not entering into that element, we're not entering into the Gospel. Okay? And I felt like the Lord showed me, you've laid that out to the people, now go to the next thing you teach it by. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I've had this strategy in my head already, but I didn't realize it. The next thing I would teach at FIRE is like once you're founded on the gospel, 
Jesus himself becomes the only foundation. Not our little tricks on how to have church. Not our little marketing schemes on how to draw people. But Jesus himself is the foundation of the church. So if Jesus is the foundation through the gospel, that means Jesus himself must be the vibrant substance of the church since our foundation is a person. Worship is the expression of having Jesus as the foundation. So the Lord says, well, that's your next assignment. That's something you have to establish as a holy stronghold in your groups to make it biblical. You have to be people of worship. The Lord is saying, build an altar and call on the name of the Lord. Everything will flow out of the spirit of worship. Worship is the mandate of heaven on the earth. Worship is not just what you do when the music's playing during a service. Worship is life. It's expressed through affectionate interaction with God. That is not only described in the Bible, it's actually commanded. Now, it's commanded to people who have the Spirit, so it's got to be a work of the Spirit. It's not, you can't make people worship. God speaks to the Spirit within us, and the Spirit rises up as the Spirit of worship. Worship is devotion to God. Worship is affectionate, covenant, surrender to God. So that life is Godward, not self. Now, we have to restore that in our day and in our work, not because we're anti-worshippers or we're not worshippers, but because there's a level of establishment that we have not achieved yet. Now, achieving it, I don't want to go too far with my words like it's something that we create, but we are responsible for our part of stewardship. There's something we are called to do, to gather the stones of our lives. We, some of us have stones in different places in our lives, they have to be gathered from different places and we have to build an altar to God with these stones that cost us something. So that when people come in our midst, whether it's our home, whether it's one of our house churches, whether it's a meeting like this, or whatever, there's a sense of the presence of God. Because what we're about is not just our way of doing church. And we're not like this. What we're about is the glory of God and the presence of God and the work of God, and the God, God. We're God people. We're His people. There should be a sense of His presence when people around us are around us. There should be a sense of reverence, a sense of Godwardness, a sense of sacrifice and devotion and brokenness and attention to the throne and the one who's seated on the throne. That's what the church is. If we don't have that, who cares how much fellowship you have? That becomes cultic. Who cares how you're not doing this, but you are doing this? Who cares if you could use apostolic language? You, we, anybody can fake that. The Bible's read everywhere. You could read, we read Ephesians 4 where they don't do it, and they still preach from it. And they read, read this and preach that. It happens all the time, and no one does anything about it. So we can do that too. But you, you, you could fake anything to humanize but you can't fake the glorious presence of God. I don't know what you think of when you think of that. Right now, it doesn't even matter. I'm not talking about something that just comes from a Pentecost or a Charismatic or the, you know, the, the old line Methodists and the, the days of different revivals among Methodists and 
whatever else, revivalists, all of that may be included and have dimensions of what God was doing and maybe some of the flesh, it doesn't matter. But we need God in our midst, whatever we think that looks like. And we might have it technically and theologically, but the Lord is calling on us to have it experientially. And the wineskin to create that is a people who are on the altar burning for God in devotion. There's a sense of the fear of the Lord when you're among people like that. See, these folks I spoke of in Scotland, they're not very theologically astute. Some of them are just getting going in the faith. But because Jesus was all they had, and they loved him, and they would sacrifice and experience great inconvenience just to come to a meeting, because it was about Jesus. I'm not joking. When you walk in that place, you feel something that's different. Like they said of the, the healing rooms when John G. Lake's healing technicians would be, two or three people would be set up in a room and someone would come in to get prayer because they were ill. The, what was said of them when they came in the room, you could feel the tangible presence of God because the healing technicians, their minds were on the Lord. It brought an atmosphere of God's presence. I felt it this morning to a degree. Here, here and there it kind of popped out, but there was, a, there was something there, but we got to work on it, on our part. A friend of mine leads a church and was telling me a few weeks ago a bunch of people came and got saved because the week before there were evangelists that went out into the community, got some unsaved people, like about eight people to come to the church service. They didn't get saved yet, but they at least got them to come to church. During worship, inexplicably, the glory of God just came into the congregation. There's no one thing happening. It was just worship at some the presence of God came. The sense of God was so powerful. These unsaved people just started to weep. All eight of them were touched by the Lord. They felt the love and power of God. You know, God is one of the, he's like one of the members of the church. He's real. He's not he's much more than that. But it's like he is a person. We'd like to have him around. So he came. These folks were so touched. They didn't get saved that morning. But next week, they all gave their lives to the Lord. Now they're all plugged into different churches that are led by that work. God just came. Now, you can't manufacture God coming. People have tried, and it gets really flaky and flippy. But we can create the wineskin of of consistent devotion, of God-centeredness and God-wordness with a focus on Jesus as King that creates the environment that says, Lord, just like the two on the road to Emmaus, don't walk by. We invite you in. You see what I'm saying? Well, we're going to read the text now. But this is what I want to leave you with. This is what I'm going to pound on for a little while. And this is what um, we're going to establish in our hearts and lives. We're going to receive it. If it's from the Lord, we're going to receive it as a word from the Lord and say, okay, this is the strategy now. It's not some clever idea. We are going to build in in our hearts as individuals an altar of worship. That's going to be the foundation of our lives. In our families, in our homes, in our churches, we're going to have God. We're either, we're either following Jesus or we're, we're just doing church and mission. I say let's follow Jesus. Let's be Jesus people. Amen? I believe it's an assignment the Lord has given us to restore the altar of worship in this city. I'm not saying we're the heroes and it's lacking out there. It's just where we are. 
and what we're given to do. There is no worship without sacrifice. There is no worship without fellowship with the Holy Spirit. There is, not wor- there is no worship without being deliberate to, to embrace what David says in Psalm 27. One thing I've asked, and that I shall seek. So it's both a prayer request, and it is diligent, deliberate human effort. That I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And to meditate in His temple. That's worship. Now for me, I use the Bible on both ends. When I'm looking at the Lord, when I'm gazing at His beauty, I get that content right here. It might be visual, audible. This is not just my iPad. It's, it's the Bible. Pretend it's a Bible. It, it is the Bible text. I mean, just so you know. I use this to, to learn who God is and not just study theology, but to relate to Him. So that His beauty creates an attitude of awe, fascination, thanksgiving, gratitude, devotion, faithfulness. Okay. I'm not just trying to work on myself. I'm not trying to rehab myself from my old person. I'm being transformed by looking at His likeness. Come on now. That has to be what life's about. That's life. And then the second dimension, meditating in this temple, that's when I meditate on the Word. I'm, I'm soaking in the Word. But there's that, there's that moment where I'm not just looking at the Word, but I'm gazing at the beauty of the Lord. Okay? That's not just a girly thing. That's a Davidic thing. David wrote that psalm. Kings gaze at the beauty of the Lord. It's what makes them kings. It's what gives them authority on the earth to make church. So that there's mission and there's fellowship. That comes through the spirit of a king. And what, what, what defines the spirit of a king is worship. David would play his heart and sing to the Lord just as quickly as he would cut the head off someone that violated covenant in his city. That's where the two are related. I don't advocate violence. Right now we, we do violence in the spirit against demons, not people. But then, the city of God, which is what we're building, David said, Psalm 111, every morning I cut off the wicked from the city of God. Well, he got that jealousy for the Lord's glory by gazing at him and knowing him personally and intimately. It's what defines the man. It's what defines the family. It's what defines the authority of the Lord on the earth. As a result, I'm drawn this morning to Revelation 4, and I'm going to read it and then pick a few things out of it. Because it's giving us... a, a picture, also some principles I'm going to draw out. Then we're going to start to make it practical. And then what I'd like to do is to try to make it more practical in the weeks in between our meetings and try to equip the saints from my vantage point, posting things, maybe coming up with some suggestions of things we could do on our own. I've got to figure some of that out. I'm still working on this. and You guys can help. But um, we're going to make this practical, but I've got to lay the groundwork out today and give the prophetic call, see if our hearts are willing yeah. I can't get away from Revelation 4 and 5 for several weeks, or a couple of weeks maybe. We sang out of these passages this morning several times. I don't know if you realize that. came directly out of this. It was not um, planned. I really felt like it was a confirmation from the Lord. I felt like the prophetic words were also, particularly Bill's identified this idea of Gazing at the Lord, worshiping Him in His glory, and then bringing it into practical life. I'm like, well, that's what we're talking about. 
But guys, we have to, let me just say one more thing. I'm going to repeat it, but I'm going to say it again. That, that's what repeating is, Bob. Okay, good. Um, we have to do this. We have to make room in our lives to build an altar right in the middle of everything and be people of worship. And it's got to cost us something or it's not worship. We've got stones placed, you know, you build an altar with stones, uncut. We've got stones placed in different areas. Some of us got it, on, you know, wherever, on a shelf, under a bed, on our TV, on our computer, at work, at home, in our heads. We've got rocks in our heads. Uh, I don't know what. We've got rocks placed in places that we're supposed to take away from those places to build an altar. Whatever that means for you. Let's put forth the effort. And Lord, we call on your name, that you'd be gracious to us and come to us. Give us wisdom to build a temple that is us. A temple that you don't just visit, but that you live in. We pray that you'd be surrounded by our worship and you'd have mercy on us and be in our midst. We're praying for the big thing. We're praying for you to be in our midst, as you already are, but we still pray it. Be in our midst, rise up in our midst, come down in our midst. Jesus is King. Amen. So Revelation 4.1. And don't worry, this isn't the beginning of my sermon. It was all part of it. And plus, we started after 10, well after 10. So there's two hours we're shooting for. After these things I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like that of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven. And one sitting on the throne. And the one who was sitting was like a jasper stone. And a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. Like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon those thrones... I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and voices and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the middle and around the throne, Four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, 
And because of your glory, excuse me, because of your will, they existed and were created. Now, we are brought through literature and the Spirit, anointing this literature, so to speak, into an experience that John actually had. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was caught up in the Spirit in response to a voice. And he was brought up, it says there was a door open in heaven, so we know he went into the place of heaven, probably what's called the third heaven, according to 2 Corinthians 12. But I believe it's more concrete than that, given what we read of later in the city of God, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven to join heaven and earth, which is what we're going for. That is what the, the, the purpose of God culminated is. It's when the new Jerusalem comes down to the earth. Heaven and earth are merged. Um, so I believe John got not just called up into some abstract sphere, but he got caught up to Mount Zion, which we read of in Hebrews 12, that when we gather, we come to this mountain that's in the spirit, literally in the heavenly realm. And on that mountain is a city in which there is no temple because the Lord God is the temple. There's no structure, there's no building, is what that means. We know from other passages, we're the temple. But then in this city, there's no building that you go to for church. God is just on the throne there. And he's in front of this platform type sea, like this, like there's a, a huge, almost like a clear marble platform, but it's like liquid and it's crystal. He's before this pavement. There's these very odd, almost bizarre creatures right close to his throne that are represented by the cherubim on the ark because they have the wings and Apparently, because of the descriptions, there's some kind of, and there's four of them, there's probably some kind of highest level caretaker beings of creation that are right by the throne. Then you have the 24 elders, which tells me we're in a city. Elders rule the city. That's even why we appoint elders in the church. It's not just elders in the church. The people of God in a city are like God's city in that city. You appoint elders in a city, not just a church. So if there's 24 elders, that means we're in the New Jerusalem in this scene. So John's up in the city and he's up in the palace and he sees the one on the throne who's indescribable. He barely, he used scanty language to hint at this one on the throne. He just says he's the one on the throne, then throws a few descriptive words out and quickly leaves that because really he's looking at one, actually seeing one with his eyes who is indescribable and who is in a category by himself. Every once in a while, I read some Christian article somewhere online or something. Sometimes even secular news outlets will have some Christian write an article in their belief section, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then I make the mistake, which at times is sometimes a mistake, of reading what some of the trolls write underneath. I'm not looking for the trolls. I'm curious as to some concept, uh, co uh, comments. And there, there are the trolls. And sometimes they're not just trolls. They're people who are just you know, angry at anything Christian, and they say things like, you know, you need to believe. This is such a typical comment in these little comment areas. It's like, you, you Christians don't understand you. There's all these world problems, and you believe in some fairy in the sky. Some, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost or something. Some fairy tale that there's some big man in the sky who loves you, and one day he's going to come help you. I'm thinking, you know, this is very interesting. They, they immediately 
see this as some kind of fantasy or superstition. Obviously, that's the hardness of their heart to doubt. God evidences himself everywhere. But the one we see described in Ephesians 4 is not a fairy tale in the sky. He is in... He, okay. John saw one who's not an angel. You know what I'm saying? He's not an angel. He's not a man. He's not anything except for Yahweh God. I'm I'm, I'm struggling to find the language to say this. Not struggling in in like human sweat, but I'm trying to give you an idea here of something or someone who is in a category all by himself. He is not the projected fairy tale of people who need religion. He is the one who is. There's nothing mystical about him in the human sense. He is God. He's not Zeus of the Greeks. He's not the, some, some uh, or, or any other of the gods. He's not part of the Roman pantheon. He's not the fantasy of people who have some lack in their heart. He's the only one who truly is. He's in a category all by himself. He's like nothing else. And here is this, this court of beings around him who gaze upon Him all day, every day, because they're given grace to see Him. He is God, and there is no other. He's the one we worship. He's called the one who was, and who is, and who is to come. That means that somehow these beings are looking at one who, unlike anyone and anything else, had no origin. This is why he's not a fantasy projected into the sky. He's the only one who was. So he's the only one who makes sense of everything else. That's why he's worshipped in Revelation 4, in particular reference to creation. Oh, I see it now. Because of your will, all things were created. It's because it was your plan and your pleasure to make all the vast details of a creation we only know a fraction of. We only know a fraction of creation. You're the one who's created and sees it all. You're the one who has it all in your scope, all projected from your genius, all made somehow. It comes from you, but it's still separate from you. No one else has that kind of power. Words cannot be uttered to describe someone like this. And these beings are seeing him every day for the endless ages of eternity. Every day. For time without end. They see a new color in the morning, one they haven't seen for centuries or millennia before. They hear a new sound they've never heard before. There's a new sensation, a new vibe from the throne. A a, a word of wisdom after millennia. You know how smart they must be after millennia at the throne of God? And yet comes another morning, another word of wisdom. Oh, I never heard that before. No wonder there's outbursts of worship. Holy, holy, holy. And this is all put in the context of Revelation. After letters to the church and before this unfolding judgment of the ages. Why? Because this is the one that we worship as the churches and this is the one who's going to end history. We have to see this scene of worship in the context of real life and church and the crises that are coming in our, in our world. 
Because this is the core of everything. This devotion to and fascination with this indescribable one who can only be called God. He can only be called holy. He can only be called the one who created all things and rules all things. It's the gaze at him that sets the tone of everything else that happens. If we're not a people of worship, there'll be lack in whatever else we do. So that's why we're actually presented this scene before specific issues come. These horsemen come, the trumpets, the bulls, judgment, the redemption of all things after that. All of that has to be seen in the light of that's who's the author of this story. Our hearts have to be conditioned by him in worship rather than conditioned by anything else because even his judgments or sometimes his even acts of mercy we will misunderstand if we don't have direct contact with him himself. And aren't caught up in the same unspeakable awe. Shocked to our core the way these beings are when they see him. Now, we have more of a challenge because we wake up in the morning, we live in this world. Which is why David says, one thing I've asked and that I shall seek. It's going to require human effort for me to peel back some veils in this world and get my heart in his presence and get fascinated with his goodness, that's one of the reasons why we have this written. We have it written so we could see what true worship is. It flows from the throne of him himself. It flows from his beauty, which is not just, ooh, wasn't that beautiful of the Lord? It was more like, oh, how can I be alive after seeing that? I've had a few, very few encounters with the Lord. I haven't seen anything like this. Though one time, I saw a little glimpse of his in a vision that was on fire. It was above my head. I was in a city and I looked up in this vision. It was an actual It was an ecstatic experience. It was actually happening to me. And I remember looking up to it and I, I, I caught one tiny glimpse and I just I, I turned my head away and I, I tried to force my way out of the vision. I couldn't handle it. It wasn't just the sight of it was overwhelming. Emotionally, I didn't have the capacity to to process what I just saw. I was in the tiniest glimpse. I felt something above me. I was in the city. It was, the whole thing was apocalyptic. All this stuff was happening. I'm like, whoa. I, go. I looked up. I'm like, okay, I'm not going there. And these beings are gazing constantly. He's God. He's Lord. He's worthy. And we are being called by the Spirit now to gaze upon Him as a way of life. other tidbits from this passage. First of all, it says in verse 1, just a few things here, okay? After these things I looked. So what were the things? The things were, he, very important, we won't read back there, but the first thing that happens is, it says, I was, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So he's in prison, but he's also in the Spirit. It says he hears a voice behind him like a trumpet. He turns to see the voice. And he sees seven golden lampstands, and among the seven lampstands, one like a son of man standing with a robe reaching to his feet. And then he describes the risen, glorious Jesus Christ waiting for him as he turns around. So the after these things for us recalls those from chapters one and two. Chapter one, actually. All right, so here's the point we're making. Number one, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And then again it says here, 
in verse 2, when he got the call to come up into the city of God, I was in the Spirit, he says. Which means he was already in the Spirit, but there was some deeper Spirit connection he needed to be transported. But the constant is this, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, those who worship God, and, and this is the kind of worshiper God is seeking, true worshipers, worship him in spirit and in truth. So one of the, the fundamental aspects of true worship is a companionship and fellowship with the person of the Holy Spirit. There's no other way to worship but to partner with him in what he's putting his finger on and what he's located. John wasn't working himself up to a vision of the throne. The Spirit wanted to show him the throne. So when he was in the Spirit, that's where he was taken. The, the, the X factor of worship is the Holy Spirit. Our call to be worshipers is our call to be spirit people. To learn the voice of the Spirit, to learn his direction, and to learn his presence as our companion and our guide. You are called to spirit life. It's dynamic, it's alive. Jesus said, the wind blows wherever it wants, you hear the sound of it. But you don't know where it came from, and you don't know where it's going. And so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Spirit people are connected to the Holy Spirit. That's our call. You hear what I'm saying? It's not a Baptist thing. It's not a Methodist thing. It's not a King's people thing. It's not Pentecostal charismatic. It's a kingdom thing. Worship is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the spirit and the flesh are at war. So sometimes your flesh ain't in the mood to worship. Sometimes your flesh is not feeling what the spirit's feeling. That's why we need to condition our hearts to be companions of the Holy Spirit. Another thing that happens here in verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit, so that's something we've keyed on. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. It's very interesting to me that John actually sees at least aspects of the one called Yahweh God. But, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't say he saw his face or anything. I'm sure the vision was limited, but it still was a lot clearer than what we normally see when we wake up in the morning. And yet, even though it's God, the indescribable one on the throne, the first thing he says that he sees is not one sitting on the throne, but he says he sees the throne. Which is very interesting. Same thing when he saw Jesus. He didn't say, whoa, son of man. He saw, oh, I saw seven lampstands and one like a son of man. See, first he details the lampstands and then he says, oh, I see a son of man. And here he first sees the throne, one sitting on the throne. Part of this is probably because he needed some reference point to help manage the focus of his intellect and his heart to one who was about to blow him out of the water. There's something that probably came into focus first. It was like, whoa, whoa, you know. Then only God's grip could keep him sane and whole in that vision. So it's probably a reference point that he needed. But it also is what struck him first of the character of God. He rules. He's, he's royal. There's, there's one throne. Of course, he shares it with his son. There's only one who sits on the throne. There's no competing philosophies or religion in this city. There's only one. And he sits on the throne. 
Our worship has to have the aspect that we're worshiping God as emperor and king. He's not just our sugar daddy. Right? He is good and he's kind and he's gentle, but he's also God. And that brings the sense of the fear of God to our hearts. That's what the spirit of worship is about. It's not just that we engage and I'm going to try. It's like, We're approaching God now. What a privilege to do so, but at the same time, well, he calls us to come boldly. There's no reason to be afraid, but there still is that sense that he sits on a throne that we have to maintain. That anointing of the fear of the Lord is upon our lives and an, an anointing that we delight in. Worship is about the fear of the Lord. This is why Jesus was heard in his prayers, according to Ephesians 5, because he had, he had reverence for God. I believe we should be people of worship, meaning we should have reverence. There should be a spirit of reverence in the way we conduct ourselves at home. There should be a spirit of reverence in the way we conduct our business. There should be a spirit of reverence in the way we chat. There should be a sense that God is on His throne over us. And we all things are laid bare before Him. We're accountable to Him. He sits on a throne. One day we will all stand before Him. We don't have to be we don't have to have human fear of that, but there should be a sense of reverence. You don't just bop in any old place, start doing or saying whatever you want. You don't do that at someone else's home. You don't do that when you walk in. Uh, I don't know. You're going to talk to some official, some some you know person with political power, even if you hated them. If you walked in their office, there'd be a certain respect, wouldn't there? Part of worship is having a deep, healthy respect for God that helps manage the details of our lives. Why? One of the reasons why we bow to pray when we eat, if you practice that. I know some people who are fine Christians, they don't even do that because it's so religious. They just say, thank you, Lord, and go on with it. But whatever. If that's what you do. It's because, man, God gave us this. This is a moment to, to bow and say, Father, thank you. The, the throne was seen first because it, it defines, the, like the bottom line of God's presence is reverence. It's awe. You're, one, you're, you're in the presence of one who has... Uh, who's in a category all by himself. Amen? Then these descriptive words come. A, a, what, what is it? A jasper stone, which in the ancient world had several different colors it could be, but it was one of the opaque stones. We know that. It was not transparent. Though later in Revelation, there's a transparent jasper in the city. And there's carnelian, so the jasper could be um, diamondish, or could be blue or yellow or brown, or red seems to be the prominent color. We don't know. Just some kind of diamond-like jewel substance. I mean, this speaks to us of God's beautiful character. There's jasper. There's what's the next one? Is it car- sardius? And then there's the emerald rainbow. See what that's speaking to us is the beauty of the Lord. That God's character is in fact awe-inspiring and fascinating. And that the heart gets joy by considering Him and how good He is. That's worship too. Actually gazing at His beauty. Here you have visual markers. Because in heaven, what is true in substance comes out physically. Did you hear that? In the heavenly realm... What's true on the interior 
has immediate reference on the exterior. In other words, you can be beautiful in this world, but be a real jerk on the inside. You could paint your face or paint the photos. You could be absolutely perfect, gorgeous, airbrushed. You could be talented and be an absolute uh, impoverished uh, depth of despair on the inside. You could be depressed. You could have children in every city and still be a fantastic athlete and good-looking and strong. You know? There can be disparity in our world between one's outward appearance, making a show for people, and one's inward reality. You can have a disparity. You could be beautiful on the outside, cool and collected, and post an image, and on the inside, be a ravenous wolf, be depressed, be broken, be evil and mean. The Bible warns us of this. Don't eat the bread of a selfish man. Because he says, eat, eat, but his heart is not with you. You eat that bread, you'll vomit it, and he'll, he'll destroy you. You can't be duped by someone who's duplicitous. In our world, we can create physical images that do not correspond to interior reality. In God's world, the two are one. You can physically see his attribute of love. You can see it with your eyes while you're hearing it and feeling it in your heart and hearing it in in his words. He is one. He's consistent. That's why John says, in him was light, and the light was the life of men. This is the message, John says, we've heard from the start, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus said, this is the judgment, that men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. But if people run to the light, then it's shown that their works have been wrought in God. What I'm saying is that God's love and His faithfulness and His goodness, when, when, when we gaze upon Him, when John sees Him, he physically sees the attributes of God. And worshipers are willing to come into that atmosphere and worship Him for that consistency and therefore and thereby become consistent people ourselves. So that what you really, what you see on the outside is what you get. It is an honest reflection of what's on the inside. David was a worshiper. That's why when David appears on the scene in 1 Samuel 13, when he's anointed, forgive me, it's back there somewhere. It says he had a ruddy complexion, beautiful eyes, handsome face. Why is he, why are we given a physical description? We were just told, in that story, God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. Because David's brothers were physically impressive. The, the, the prophet Samuel thought, oh, I'm going to anoint him. God says, no, I haven't chosen him. I've rejected him. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And here comes David, God's chosen boy. And immediately we get a physical description Because David's physical attributes were different than the other guy's physical attributes. David's physical attributes came out of the purity of his heart. It was countenance that comes from the inside. There was nothing feigned or fake. What you saw on the outside, the beauty of his countenance, came from the beauty of his spirit. He reflected God's own being because he himself worshipped God and saw him as what you say is what you mean. Forever and ever we will peer more deeply into your light and find you to have been the one who was always good and always faithful and always kind and always just and righteous and holy. We can see it on your outside. It's who you are on the inside. 
That's worship, to recognize that and to enjoy it. But it, it causes us to be called on the carpet for our inconsistencies. It's, what's, it's, it's, a, it's an integrity created by a spirit of reverence that worshipers have. And finally, one more point I'll take out of this passage. Okay, so that point was we're gazing at the beauty of the Lord and he, we're, He's worthy to be fascinated by, but there's also a consistency we respect that's created in us. And the final thing I want to say from this passage before I bring it in for a landing is this bit about, in verse 4, right at the beginning of my verse, it says, around the throne were 24 thrones. Then in verse, um, uh, verse, let's see where we're at here. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, verse 6. Before the throne, like a sea of glass, crystal, in the center and around the throne, uh, four living creatures full of eyes, front and behind. So, the four creatures were around the throne. It's a circle around the throne. The 24 elders are creating a circle around the throne. So it's apparent then that you know, then the angels around that were around the, around the throne. It was a concentric circle around the throne. It wasn't an audience in a platform. The, the shape here implied is a circle around the throne, which tells me a couple of things. Number, well, a few things, we'll see. Number one, that God is central to everything in heaven. And everybody's toward him. There's not all these distractions. I mean, we have kind of built-in distractions, but we still develop this centrality of God in all. You see what I'm saying? It's like he's right in the center of everything. It's not like in our world where we kind of make things as a bunch of squares and God's in his own square. No, in a worshiper's life, God's just right interrupting the middle of everything all the time. It's like right in the middle and everything just... Like, like, like the vibrations of an earthquake or some bomb that just went off. Everything's just concentric circles going out from him. Not attending his service when he's lucky. It's like he's right in the middle of everything. That's worship. Where God is central. Men, create that environment in your home. Put the throne in the middle. Don't put it off to the side. Put it in the middle. And don't do it by trying to manufacture it yourself. Do it by doing it yourself. Then lead. Not that you have to wait a million years, but I'm saying that the flow has to be from you. Not what you're insisting on, but what you're doing. Come on now, let me hear a few amens. I remember one of the youth guys I worked with a long time ago in college in Florida. Good old Tommy Sloan. I'll never forget this little snapshot he gave us. He was such a good man, a good minister. I love this guy. He's so cool. Funny in his long blonde hair and slick guitar playing. But just a good cat. He'd say, you know, my dad taught me to worship. I remember when I was a little kid. If I got up in the morning, whatever it was, I'd come downstairs. My dad was already up. I didn't realize it. But when I, I'd come in the room, he's in the middle of the living room. And it's mostly dark, but you can basically see. And my dad would just be on his knees with his hands out. And his eyes closed, worshiping God. That's what I grew up with, he said. My dad worshiped God. And from that place, he led our family. 
Come on, dude. Make the throne of God the middle. The throne, which is the beauty of belief. And not, not just trying to get some discipline. You need that to make it happen. But there's something in the middle that energizes you. It's not merely a lifestyle. It's something that energizes you. It's, it's the brook you constantly go and drink from. This is what I mean by build that altar. Put it in the middle and gaze at God and make it the center of life. Heaven is not set up like a big church worship service. The people are all faced one way. They're seeing the back of each other's heads. And the people in the front have a certain place. Whether you like it or not, even in this setting, which is appropriate, I think. But even in this setting, there's that sense, but that's just the way we're functioning. Interestingly, the way I'm most comfortable is when the church meets when they're facing one another, even physically. Not just because we're family, but because it takes away a certain enthronement from people and makes Jesus on the throne. And we're all together as one gazing to him, in a sense. I'm not saying the shape in which we worship determines that much, but I do see some things reflected therein. We have to reorient the shapes of our minds. Now that sounds far out, man. We have to reorient the way we, the shapes in which we live our lives. My friend sent me a, um, he's, he's an apostle from England, actually. He's, and, uh, he, gets all, he gets a lot of his insights from business models. And he sees God working in the business world. A lot of new business models reflect God's wisdom for the church. And he sent me this little video, you know those videos that talk, but they're drawing things, they're drawing what they're saying, it's some guy drawing, and it looks real cool. And anyway, he sent me this thing, and it was explaining some new business model that, that I cannot remember right now. But the idea was is that the business model, there was a flow to it that it expanded itself, and the good leaders would follow the flow of what's happening, empower the people, and kind of um, guide what's already happening naturally, rather than just dictate and make all these decisions, with all the important decision-making activity. They're recognizing what's happening. And the whole thing this way was illustrated was through circles bursting open, circles. Instead of like squares or lines, there were circles being formed. It's just an, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think we live more in squares where we categorize things. I know women blur things together from what I understand. Men categorize things. I don't, I don't peer much into understand those secrets. That's like this passage. But that, that's why I'm speaking mostly to the men. I'm assuming the women are there. But, but John, as a man, he, he sees the throne. It's like right in the middle, and everything's concentric after that. It's like we have to change our model. We're not, just, we're not so categorized. Like Nehemiah going in to do business with the king, he throws up a prayer as he's going in. It's like even though right now I'm at work and I have to, uh, I have to go deal with the king because of this emergency, I have to beg his mercy and try to go there. It's like there's still a sense that Yahweh is on the throne in the middle of everything. He's still before the throne as he proceeds in before this king, praying, having this kind of contact. I, it's, it's like he thought in concentric circles. It's like God's in the throne and everything's going to happen outside of that. So my life is always coming back, almost with an addiction, back to the throne. Back to the throne. That's the center of everything. My wife, or my husband, my children, my work, they're not the throne. My friends, my values, all these things that are important. Have I named anything sinful? 
Haven't I named all these things that are important and need investment from our lives? They need our time. Yes, they're all valuable. They're all good. They're all gifts from God. But they're not the center. They're not the one on the throne. Come on now. Worship puts all these other things away in comparison to the one on the throne. And everything is just focused in the center on the throne. And then all comes out from him. Amen. Thank you for that applause. Mid-service, that's just the spontaneous outburst that happened during great preaching. Okay, one more point about this, just one other illustration. Again, these guys are surrounding the throne. I would love, at least figuratively speaking, our work to be creating a circle around God. See, if we're only creating a box before him, then you're, we're free to just come in and out as we please. We're all just yeah, coming in and out. But if it's a circle, it's like we're protecting the perimeter. And we're not going to allow any gap. Everything is going to be filled with a worshiper before the, before the throne. So it's not just facing God. It's all around him. We can see one another. But there's all, everyone has a place on the perimeter that's just, God, you're my life. I love you. You're everything. So we're creating that space that makes God most welcome. We're not leaving any gaps. People are whatever. Yeah, people that just are not... They're not there in worship. Defining what we're supposed to be. It's not defined by our meetings. First, it's defined by our devotion to God. We don't want any gaps in the circle. We want everybody surrounding the Lord saying, okay, Lord, you're wonderful. We worship you. We thank you. We spend time with you. We enjoy your presence and we're satisfied with you. And then everything else flows from there, just like this book of Revelation. So my encouragements to make it practical are very simple. And we'll try to get more bare-bones practical as we work this out together. And I already hinted at it, so I'll, I'll just reiterate. The first priority is our own hearts and our own life. As a gospel community, we're a covenant community, and our first covenant is to God. And the first obligation of that covenant is to worship God actively, consistently, and affectionately. You have your assignment. Open up your heart before the Lord. Gather the stones and build an altar and call on His name consistently. Be a throne-centered person. Fall in love with God again. There's something very precious that we came out of revival. For all the things that some, you, know, you don't understand about what, what's the way some people reacted to God's presence or that some people loved about that, one thing that was a very unusual element to these times of revival were that God was present. Sometimes you would physically feel something that you scary. Sometimes just downright scary. Sometimes pretty wild. In, in any case, we need a sense of God's actual person among us. And that is cultivated. Not for the sense... It's not, I don't want the experience as much as I want the person. I'm talking about Him. Just like I... You know, on a much lower level, I talk about my wife when I'm in Wales. Skype is great. Presence is better. I don't want to, res- I don't want to respect the, the presence of any person more than I respect the presence of God. So I'm encouraging every person to build, to take stones from your schedule, stones from your efforts, stones from whatever makes up your life, and build an altar at which you worship every day. I would challenge the men to spend time in worship twice a day, because it was a morning and evening sacrifice, just something to throw out there, because we usually won't do it in the latter part of the day. 
But if you take some time in the afternoon, early evening, or whatever, even if it's just a chunk of time, you make some space and say, you know what? I'm just going to go shut away and get on my knees and just begin to cry out to God or adore Him. Sing a praise song. How about the restoration of music? That's all part of it, too. That's probably for another week. Okay? So we want to start in our own hearts as individuals. Build altars and worship God. Not just for a little thing to do, but putting Him in the center. Amen. Second, build an altar in your house. What we're doing, you know, we, we, we practice family devotions. We do it sporadically, but still consistently. So now we've tried to designate three days where there's three evenings where as a family we will worship together. I encourage you to do the same. I'm speaking to the men who are lead families because they're the leaders of their homes. And Paul says, I want the men in all, every place lifting up holy hands. The women are to dress modestly. They had a different assignment. <laughs> Why are the women dressing modestly and the men lifting up holy hands? Because women tend to be more devotional by nature and men tend not to be. So the greater need was to teach the women to dress to cover themselves fully so that they're not causing you know, men who are more visual that way to stumble. And the men are instructed by an apostle to take spiritual initiative in their home. Not just in instructing and bossing, but leading the way as a worshiper, lifting up holy hands. Paul says he wants that from men in every place. So the men need to filter in the spirit of worship by just recognizing through adoration that God is Lord and building some altars in space and in time. Not a physical altar, but in schedule and in the home, worship and praise and prayer and the activity of the Spirit and, and based on the work. We'll tend to do three different things at three different, on the three different days. But it's, it's, it's something that at least you make the attempt, you build the altar, and it starts to move into your life. And then for the house churches, I would like us to see us work on this as our assignment. It's not the only thing you'll be doing, but it's something we have to emphasize because now our goal is to complete an assignment from the Lord and to please Him. And to bring a spirit of devotion into the house church so that God is the center and adoration is like the bell that's ringing. It's the sound and it's the feel of what we're doing. That could take on the form of prayer. I mean, just really quickly, really quickly. You know, it's easy to just start with someone leading music. And that is easy and convenient. We don't all have that, but it's a good way to do it. But you can't just have the music. You have to engage. Sing. Do it. We're not talking about your reputation. We're talking about God's. So focus there and go for it. You know, I've, I've been in house churches where they don't have anybody leading music. And they didn't want to spin a CD. They'll just start. People will worship just come in and say, thank you, Lord. I mean, I, I, I experienced it some in, in our group, our groups. I, I experienced it when I was overseas. They get together in the room. There's prayer time before the service. And people just, they start praying. They don't sit around waiting. So thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. It's like, these people are worshipers. They're Godward. They're not waiting for this or that or considering what people might think. They just, they're worshiping God. So that's the spirit I'm talking about. Maybe you have a guitar, maybe you have a piano, maybe you have a CD, maybe you have just one another. You have lungs, mouths, bodies. Make them instruments of righteousness. Worship. Open your mouth. Let's break through this, this, this veil that sometimes lies over us. 
or we don't want to interact intimately and directly with God. His assignment is for us to burn that veil and to build an altar and be people of worship. To unload what we recognize of God in our hearts, to unload it in voice, in speech, in prayer, in praise, in prophecy, in songs, however the expression is. It's time to rediscover God and make Him our all in all. Amen.